Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. Small, close-knit communities have a number of advantages and a certain level of charm about them. Within many such communities, everyone knows each other, neighbors look out for one another, and there's always a helping hand nearby. One of the most prevalent examples of this is the Amish, rural fellowships of religious families that put many of the conveniences of modern technology to the side and live their lives by the sweat of their brow and spiritual compass. To outsiders, an Amish lifestyle is like journeying into the far distant past, and it's seen by those immersed in today's many technological luxuries as a bewildering way to live in the modern era. As one would expect, something as heinous as murder in an Amish community is rare and often more shocking for it, but in this particular case, the mere fact the murder occurred at all is a far cry from as shocking as the way in which it occurred. When working together is an aspect and requirement of day-to-day living, having a killer amongst such a fellowship could shake anybody's trust in their neighbor. In this episode of Anatomy of Murder, we delve into the background and crime of Edward Gingrich, the first ever convicted Amish murderer. Edward was one of 11 children. He and his family arrived in Crawford County, Pennsylvania in 1983 when he was 18 years old. From a young age, Edward was considered a bit of a rebel to the Amish way of life. He was fascinated with the meager machinery that they would allow themselves. He worked on a sawmill on the family property and could repair diesel engines. His skill had earned him a reputation as a master mechanic. In his community, It was said that no one could repair an engine better than Ed. In addition to his fascination with machinery, Ed also became close with non-Amish locals. He made friends with a man named Richard Zimmer and even confessed to not liking the Amish way of life. That is, until he met Katie Shetler. She was the daughter of a respected elder, and many people were apprehensive about the relationship when they began seeing each other. Despite those misgivings, however, pressure from both families forced Gingrich to propose, and on a rainy day in 1986, 
they made their bond official within the eyes of God and married. In the spring of 1987, Katie became pregnant and she gave birth to a son, Danny, named after his paternal grandfather. However, Edward eventually became distant and began spending more time isolated away from others, not longing for the interaction that was so common and something Edward had little trouble with before. As the days passed by, Edward became more and more secluded, not just physically, but mentally as well. His family, which would have his utmost attention, were now finding it difficult to get through to Edward. He started to ignore his new wife and son. Concern grew for Edward's new state of being, but his family and community remained close, as was their nature. What no one could have known was that Edward's isolation and disregard for others were only the beginning of a transformation that would leave his community scarred. A darkness was growing inside of him. By July of 1988, Edward began to fall ill. He suffered from dizzy spells and was sleeping an abnormal amount. His worried wife contacted a medic favored by the Amish. The man was a chiropractor whose focus was on drug-free treatment. He prescribed Edward a toe-pulling and a foot rub. He also gave him a jar of molasses for purifying his blood and charged $25 for the service. Perhaps unsurprisingly, despite more visits to the medic and more molasses, his condition did not improve. But not all of Edward was lost. In 1989, Katie gave birth to their second son, and in 1990, she gave birth to a daughter. With seldom periods of interaction, Edward largely continued to ignore his wife and children. Not only this, but Edward no longer wanted any more children at all. He even refused to sleep with his wife for fear she would become pregnant again. By 1991, Edward's health continued to worsen, and he was further harmed by exposure to a solvent in his machine shop. It was around this time that his mental health became impaired as well. He began howling and racing around his living room on all fours like a wild beast. Throughout 1992, his behavior became more bizarre. He said he was seeing giant rabbits, and he would rant and rave that God and Satan were battling for his soul. His family hospitalized him twice, once having to hogtie him to get him to an emergency room where he sent medical equipment flying once he was freed. Gingrich was given medication to ease his symptoms. Unfortunately, he stopped taking the antipsychotic drugs, saying that they made him feel sluggish and put him in a zombie-like state. Edward's mental health continued to worsen, and in March of 1993, he was taken to see a special Amish healer named Jacob Troyer. Troyer told Katie, Your husband has a mental problem. Take him to a hospital. I'm afraid of suicide. Goodbye and good luck. The next day, Gingrich remained in bed until 9 a.m. He was taken to the chiropractor who would massage Edward's scalp and gave him liver pills. Perhaps if Edward had gotten the help he so clearly needed, the heinous events to come could have been avoided.
One non-Amish friend Edward had met through the sawmill was a born-again Christian, David Lindsay. They became fast friends, but David often tried to convert Edward. He told him that unless he renounced his Amish faith and became a born-again Christian like Lindsay, he would go to hell. David, as well as other evangelists who visited the woodshop, lectured Edward about renouncing his faith and led him to believe that he was being confined and held captive by his wife, Katie. With Edward's worsening mental state, he began to associate his wife with the devil. On May 18, 1993, Gingrich had been severely depressed and threatening suicide. That day, he entered his kitchen where Katie was working and punched her in the face, knocking her to the ground. He shouted at her, I am the devil. Katie yelled to her six-year-old son Danny and told him to fetch Dan Gingrich, Edward's brother. When the young boy arrived at his uncle's house, he said that daddy isn't well. Knowing of his brother's illness, Dan raced to Edward and Katie's home and was met with a gruesome scene. When he arrived, Edward was on top of Katie and punching her in the face. He stood up and smashed his right foot into her mouth and nose. Dan tried to stop his brother, but then fled to the nearest house to seek more help. Meanwhile, Edward put on his work boots and again smashed his wife in the face, crushing her head until her brains began oozing out. He then undressed his wife's corpse, grabbed a steak knife, and slashed open her stomach. Edward reached inside and removed her heart, lungs, spleen, liver, kidneys, ovaries, and intestines, then stacked these in a neat pile beside her corpse. He then washed himself in the sink, threw his Bible into the fireplace, and told the children to put on their coats. He told them he was taking them to their grandfather's home and then returning to burn down the house. Fortunately, for his children's sake, Edward did not make it that far. The ambulance crew had been told that the scene was not safe. The call was for a disturbed male and there was some talk of Gingrich's wife. They were saying he was at the house killing her. Assistant Fire Chief Andrew McLaughlin had been to the household roughly a year earlier. He had met Edward and had witnessed him howling like a dog, cackling and spitting like a madman, and fighting tooth and nail while his family and the ambulance crew wrestled him into restraints. McLaughlin had ridden in the back of the ambulance that day and had heard Edward whisper that his heart was loose and that he was drowning on the inside. This time, the emergency crew were expecting the same thing. However, when they encountered Edward on the road with his four-year-old son and three-year-old daughter, he was calm and quiet. He told them that his father would understand. So when McLaughlin drove up to the Gingrich home, he was not prepared for the nightmare he would find inside. The naked body of Katie Gingrich lay face up on the floor, her skull had been smashed, and her internal organs lay on the floor beside her. McLaughlin radioed back to his crew, telling them to send the police right away and keep an eye on Gingrich. One of the EMTs was so disturbed that she immediately ran from the house to be sick upon seeing the dreadful scene. When police arrived, Edward was promptly arrested. 
He was advised of his rights and freely admitted that he had killed his wife. When Edward arrived at the police station, he was ordered to take off his boots and coat so that they could be taken as evidence. As he did, a piece of flesh fell from the boot. Still suffering from his delusions, during the police interrogation, he told officers that, for some reason, I think we could still save her. It was while he was being held for the trial that Edward had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. At last, a name could be given to the illness that had plagued Edward. Unfortunately, the diagnosis came far too late to save Katie. Neither prosecution nor defense disputed that Edward had killed his wife. Instead, defense attorney Donald Lewis argued that Gingrich was too mentally ill to know what he was doing and therefore entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Ed cried out for help to his father, to his wife, to his brothers, saying he was getting worse, that the headaches were getting worse, that God had deserted him, and that he was possessed by the devil, Lewis said during opening statements of the trial. Katie's mother, Emma Shetler, said her son-in-law wasn't acting unusual when the family visited a few weeks before the killing. The chiropractor testified that for six months and even a few hours before the slaying, he was treating Gingrich for his ailment. He said that he gave Gingrich scalp massages and molasses, but didn't explain the reasoning behind this treatment. In 1994, Edward Gingrich was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter, but mentally ill. He served his five-year sentence in the prison ward of a mental hospital. Many felt this sentence to be too light. Professionals, as well as members of the Amish community, petitioned for him to serve permanent hospitalization. They worried that Edward would be free to stop taking medication when he was released and left to his own devices, potentially leading to relapse into his psychosis and violence. Others in the Amish community petitioned for Edward's release. Their ministers claimed that the medication had restored his sanity and that he felt genuinely remorseful for killing his wife. They believed that he deserved the chance to repent and even offered to take him in and supervise him. In 1998, Edward was released and moved to an Amish mental care facility in Michigan. After an incident there, he moved to an Indiana psychiatric unit for Amish, who need constant supervision. However, Edward wanted to reconcile with his family, especially his children. Eventually, he moved back to Crawford County to live on the fringes of his former community. A nurse visited him to give him his medications, and he saw a psychiatrist every two weeks. He even had a caseworker who monitored him closely. Despite all of this, life would never be the same for Gingrich. He had lost more than his wife with his violent act. While two of his brothers and his teenage sons reconciled with him, Edward was still shunned by the rest of the community, and by associating with him, his family was shunned along with him. 
His teenage daughter lived with her grandparents and had been forbidden to see her father. Emotions ran so high over the presence of a killer among them that when some of the Gingrich teens tried to attend a youth prayer meeting, they were arrested for defiant trespass. Things came to a head in April of 2007 when Edward and his sons kidnapped Mary and held her captive for five days. Clara Gingrich, Mary's aunt, told police in her affidavit that she and Mary were riding in a horse-drawn buggy when Ed's brother Dan jumped onto the wagon, took the reins, and drove the cart down to another of the Gingrich brothers' residences. As the buggy approached the barn, Mary's brother, Eno, grabbed the horses and led the wagon into the barn where Ed, Atley, and Joe Gingrich waited. All three men spoke to Mary and coerced her to leave with them. They told Mary that if she did not go with her father, the police would be called and she would be forced to go with him. So she agreed to leave in a car. Five days later, she was found safe with her father and other family members in McKean County. As with everything involving Edward Gingrich, the community was divided when it came to Mary's kidnapping. Many had feared for the safety of the 17-year-old, thinking Edward had another psychotic episode. In their mind, a young woman was missing, and in the company of the man who had murdered her mother. Others felt as her father did. He still maintained legal custody of his daughter and wanted the chance to show Mary he loved her. Regardless of his intentions, he was sentenced to six months probation and fined $500 after pleading no contest to concealing the whereabouts of a child. Despite reconciling with some of his family, there was no way Edward could move forward with his life after being shunned from his community. For an Amishman, this fate was a worse punishment than the five years he spent in prison and would eventually contribute to Edward's end. Those around Edward said he struggled with his guilt. He was depressed that he couldn't see the rest of his family, or they would be at risk of being shunned themselves. Eventually, his depression would grow until, in 2011, nearly two decades after killing Katie, Edward was found dead of an apparent suicide. He had been living with his attorney, George Schroick, for six months, and it was George's wife who found Edward's body hanging in the barn. The only message left behind was, Forgive me, please, written in dust on top of a bucket. Only in death was Edward Gingrich welcomed back into his community. He was buried beside his wife in an Amish cemetery. His burial within the community that had shunned him was a gesture of reconciliation that remained as bitterly disputed as his life had been. No matter their feelings, Amish from far and wide came on short notice to attend the funeral. They lent their support to Edward's brothers and sons. It was an act of reunion, welcoming them back now that Edward was gone. The family was in enough anguish as, once again, Edward had violated the commandment of Thou shalt not kill. They worried for his immortal soul, but in their belief... That was now in the hands of a righteous judge, 
and not their place to continue to disagree over. So in death, and with an Amish burial, the tragic events could finally be given some closure. The Amish are a very interesting and peculiar people. There's something fascinating and perhaps appealing about a life away from modern conveniences. For the many benefits that lifestyle may have on the mind, in this particular case, it was that lifestyle that very likely contributed to the death of a devoted mother. It's reasonable to assume that the horrific murder would never have come to pass had Edward been given the help he actually needed, help from a more modern world. While he had been briefly hospitalized, the reliance on drug-free natural treatment did nothing to help Edward with his inner demons. A man who often begged his family for help and would imagine them as the worst things possible in his hallucinations. Whether religious or not, Edward could be described as possessed, though perhaps not by literal demons, but by the delusions of a deranged mind. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.